Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Again Internet Radio. Whoops. I'm sorry, I swore I pressed that stop button. I swear I did. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Again Internet Radio. Today is Friday, October 22nd, 2021. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening, I am going to begin a commentary on the Song of Songs, also often called the Song of Solomon or Canticles. This is Canticles after the Latin name or word for song. This is part one, and it is titled The Allegory, very simply, because we will begin by explaining that. The work is attributed to King Solomon. And we have good reason to accept the attribution, in spite of quote-unquote modern scholars and all the clowns at Wikipedia and other such publications. Hopefully our effort shall correct at least some misgivings concerning the song, as we shall call it here. Before we begin, we shall examine what early Christian writers thought of the song, as we were also encouraged to do when we examined more modern references, namely the article discussing the song found at Wikipedia. It's not the only source we checked, but we will pick on a couple of sources this evening. Not every old adage is true. There is a popular saying, or at least it was popular in generations past, that warns us to never look a gift horse in the mouth. The common interpretation of the adage is correct, as it is saying that one should not criticize a gift. But even Solomon warned in Proverbs chapter 19 that many will entreat the favor of the prince, and every man is a friend to him that giveth gifts. In other words, people love free stuff. And the favor of a prince can be bought with gifts, which is bribery. So Solomon wrote later in Proverbs chapter 29 that the king by judgment establishes the land, but he that receives gifts overthrows it. So a king who accepts such bribes may ultimately bring his own kingdom to ruin. So it is with all these free websites on the internet. There is no doubt Facebook and Google and all of these Jewish-controlled websites that are free because they have been able to control the internet through those free platforms, eliminating all possible competition. This is the problem with Wikipedia. Access is free, so essentially it is a gift to all who use it. But it is free because nobody is truly responsible for it, since its editors are mostly anonymous volunteers. And practically anyone can become an editor. Yet millions of people turn to it daily and imagine it to be some fount of knowledge. So, in the Wikipedia article for the Song of Songs, the provenance and therefore the veracity of the song is disputed. Where we read, and I'll read one short paragraph, that the most reliable evidence for its date is its language. Aramaic gradually replaced Hebrew after the end of the Babylonian exile in the late 6th century BC. They say BCE, to take Christ out of the equation. 
And the evidence of vocabulary, morphology, idiom, and syntax clearly points to a late date. Notice the authoritative tone of this. Centuries after King Solomon, to whom it is traditionally attributed, it has parallels with Mesopotamian and Egyptian love poetry from the first half of the first millennium. Big deal. And with the pastoral idols of Theocritus, a Greek poet who wrote in the first half of the third century BC, E. As a result of these conflicting signs, speculation ranges from the 10th to the 2nd centuries BCE, with the language supporting a date around the 3rd century. And I will tell you now, that is all a lie, every bit of it. Yet in another Wikipedia article discussing Biblical Aramaic, because they claim in their article on the Song of Songs that its language is Aramaic, in the Wikipedia article discussing Biblical Aramaic, this will all be linked here in our podcast notes, there are two lists of passages containing Aramaic words or phrases that are found in the Hebrew Old Testament. In a list titled Undisputed Occurrences, there is supplied one verse each from Genesis, Proverbs, and Jeremiah, and then large sections of the prophets Daniel and Ezra. Then, in a list titled, Other Suggested Occurrences, there is one verse each from Genesis, Numbers, Job, and the second psalm. Now, one may think that if the Song of Songs had one Aramaic word, then it would have been mentioned there, as several of the listed passages have only one Aramaic word, or they are suspected to have one. But there is no mention at all of the song in that article. None. However, in an obscure article titled Israelian Hebrew, where competing methodologies for interpreting ancient biblical Hebrew writings are discussed, we read, The two theories are thus not incompatible, which is why they coexisted throughout the 20th century. However, the more recent work does pose, and they don't tell us what the more recent work is, does pose a challenge to the traditional dating of some specific text in the Bible, the Song of Songs in particular. So the article does not explain the more recent work, and while the article refers one to the Wikipedia article on the song, neither is it explained there. The truth is, that there are many competing theories on what constitutes Aramaic in Biblical Hebrew or why certain words are esteemed to be peculiar to Aramaic rather than having also occurred in Hebrew, and why they appear in the Bible, and none of them are certain. But using recent theories, a couple of Jews named Ariel and Chana Block have apparently insisted that the song has a much more recent authorship than Solomon himself, even as late as the 2nd century BC, and it is they whom Wikipedia had recited in that regard from a book published, first published in 1998. 
So, in essence, they take the speculation of two rather recent Jews and employ that to undermine our perceptions concerning the canonical value of the work. As for the comparison with the Hellenistic Greek poet Theocritus, skeptics seem to ignore the fact that Hebrew scriptures, especially in the form of the Greek translations represented in the Septuagint, had influenced Greeks throughout the Hellenistic period, and evidently even before they were translated. The structure of the Song of Songs is also much like that of the early tragic poets. And in fact, the song itself could be such a play as the tragic poets had written, as it is only missing the element of the deus ex machina, or God in the machine, which customarily appears at the end to resolve problems at the end of the play, to resolve problems that could not be resolved by men. The song has two main characters, who both have dialogues and monologues, just like tragic poetry, and a chorus of the women of Jerusalem, who occasionally interact with at least one of the, char one of the characters, very much like classical Greek poetry. The song must have been at least marginally popular, as well as having been considered a legitimate book of the Hebrew canon, in Palestine before the time of Christ. That is evident where surviving portions of four copies of the song were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. So here, in order to expose the folly of the Wikipedia articles concerning the language of the song, we will offer a large portion of the introduction to a Dead Sea Scrolls translation of the song as it was offered in the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible by Martin Abegg Jr., Peter Flint, and Eugene Ulrich. I have seen no evidence that any of these men, these three men, are Jews, and at least two of them certainly are not. What follows is from page 612, where I also inserted most of the footnotes in brackets. I don't know if I will read them all here. Four scrolls. This is Abeg, Flint, and Ulrich, or Ulrich, perhaps I should pronounce that. Four scrolls of the Song of Songs, or Canticles, were found at Qumran, three in cave four, and the fourth in cave six. All were copied in the Herodian period between 30 BCE, and they're using that BCE terminology also. All academics, modern academics, use it for fear of the Jews. They no longer use BC and AD. Between 30 BCE and 68 or 70 CE, which is what they call the Common Era. I will call that the Christian Era. Screw the Jews. They say in a comment in parentheses that Four Canticles contains too little text. I'm sorry, they said in a footnote that Four Canticles C, one of the three manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts found in K4, contains too little text on which to reach a firm conclusion, either about its dating or its language. 
The latest, they say, is found in Cave 6. 6Q Cant, it's designated. And they date that to around 50 CE. They have a limited ability to do that because of the style of the language and writing of a particular scroll. That is also the same method which Greek scholars use to date Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Now, they have other assistances, such as where the manuscripts are discovered, what hole they were dug out of in the Near East, but other than that, they can only go by the style of the writing. And it can be roughly, dates can be roughly determined by that. Two of these scrolls, designated for Cant A, or for Q Cant A, and for Cant B, deserve special mention, both because they are the best preserved and because each has a number of interesting features. Although Forkant A preserves quite a substantial amount of material, the text between Canticles or Song chapter 4 verse 7 and Canticles chapter 6 verse 11 is completely missing. Since in the Masoretic text, Canticles 4-7 forms the end of a content unit, and that's true, and Canticles 6-11 starts the beginning of another, and that is also true. It seems that the absence of chapters 4-8 through 6-10 was no mere accident. This material from this one copy of the Song of Solomon in the Dead Sea Scrolls, this material was either deliberately omitted, was not a part of the text being copied by the scribe, or occurred elsewhere in the scroll, which actually does happen from time to time. When compared with the size of the book as a whole, the section missing in this scroll is very large, about 30%. One explanation is the sensual language and erotic imagery that is found in much of the missing portion. The Song of Songs was evidently a controversial book before the time of Jesus, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were written. And I will get into that also, or at least I believe I put it in these notes. If I didn't, I will explain it extemporaneously. Continuing with Abeg, Flint, and Ulrich. The second noteworthy scroll is for Cant B, which also preserves a goodly amount of text, but omits two large segments from chapter 3, verses 6 through 8, and from chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. That's actually only six verses. And possibly ended at 5-1. So it had nothing beyond that. And they're thinking from the format of the writing that perhaps 5.1 is where they stopped copying or where they ended their copy. Thus containing only the first half of the book found in modern Bibles. It is interesting that 4Q Cant A and 4Q Cant B, Cant being short for Canticles, lack a section at exactly the same point, Canticles 
But while 4QCantA omits a large piece of the text, starting after chapter 4, verse 7, 4QCantB omits the three verses preceding the end of chapter 4, verse 7. 4QCantB also features several scribal errors. And this is the important part right here. And this is why I decided to include this entire introduction so that we understand what they're saying or at least the first two paragraphs, which is most of their introduction. 4Q Can't Be also features several scribal errors and, although written in Hebrew, contains, contains several Aramaic word forms that reveal Aramaic influence on the scribe. Now, this is important. Moreover, 4Q Can't Be contains several unusual scribal markings that seem to represent letters in either the Paleo-Hebrew script, the cryptic A script, which was used in some Qumran sectarian writings, or a combination of several scripts, including Greek. These letters in 4Q can't be may indicate a sectarian scribal background or a special function of this manuscript among the Qumran community. The actual purpose of the unusual letters is not clear, since they appear in lines that were slightly or much shorter than the surrounding ones. They may have served as line fillers written in the spaces at the end of lines to prevent such lines from being mistaken as open sections. Now, notice that the scrolls from the cave, are from, from cave 4 are sometimes prefixed with 4 and sometimes with 4Q, which was probably an oversight on the part of this book's editors. The popular convention is to use the Q as it stands for Qumran. So 4Q cant A would be the first copy of canticles found in cave four. The same scrolls from the song are also identified alternately as 4Q106, 4Q107, 4Q108, and 6Q6 in the publication of the scrolls made by Martinez and Tidkalar. In preparing this commentary, I will consult the translation of the scroll by Abeg, Ulrich, and Flint. And if any of their readings assist our understanding of the work, I shall certainly make a note of it. In the Dead Sea Scroll Study Edition by Martinez and Tigkalar, they did not reproduce the Hebrew text or offer translations from any of the scrolls containing biblical texts. They were only concerned with all of the non-biblical scrolls, and they reproduced all of them. But they do often refer their readers to other translators, including Ulrich and Flint. I didn't see any references to APEG. Now, one conclusion we may draw from this information is that if APEG, Flint, and Ulrich, all three men having advanced degrees and experience in translating Hebrew, even though they are Judeo-Christians, if they had made special mention of the fact that one copy of the song among the four which were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls had some Aramaic words, then it is fully apparent that 
copies of the song existed and were found among the scrolls, which were in Hebrew and which had no Aramaic words. So whatever copy of the song was included in the Masoretic text, the earliest existing manuscripts of which are dated to over a thousand years after the Dead Sea Scrolls is immaterial. The Wikipedia conclusion about the language of the song is defective because it is based on incomplete evidence from a Jew who is not even specifically a Hebrew language scholar, but only a professor of Near Eastern history, according to information provided in reviews for his book. This probably happened more frequently than we can imagine, that ancient scribes are found to have updated the language of older scrolls which they were copying, and it seems to have been an aspect of the scribal art. For example, I have one example. I probably could have chose out half a dozen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 9, there is a word, muzzle, to muzzle, as it, appears, as it appears in the King James Version. Thou shalt not muzzle the treading ox, which in the 3rd century papyrus P46 and the codices Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Ephraimisiri, and the majority text is Fimao. Fimao. I'm not sure how to pronounce that short O, long O combination in Greek, but it occurs in all of the first person present indicative vowels, or in many of verbs, I'm sorry, first person present indicative verbs. It occurs in many of them, not all of them, many of them. So, we have this verb fimao in those manuscripts. However, in the Codices Vaticanus and Claromontanus, it is kamao, K-A-M-O, omega, the omega being the long O. And kamao is a synonym of fimao. They have the exact same meaning. So, two manuscripts, and the Codex Vaticanus is from the 4th century, and the Claromontanus from the 6th, I believe, two manuscripts have this alternate synonym verb, and scribes had no problem putting that verb in there, and it doesn't change the, the sense of what Paul had written, not one bit. This is one example of Differences in the manuscripts, which were made due to preferences in vocabulary from one dialect of Koine Greek to another. It is plausible that perhaps Fimao was obscure or not even used in some areas, while the substitute verb Kemao was better known. So a substitution was made, which by no means injures the meaning of the passage. There Paul had cited Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, where fimao was the word used in the Septuagint. So perhaps what we have in the versions of the song found in the Dead Sea Scrolls is evidence of that same thing, that the original Hebrew was preserved in one copy 
of the song, while another copy had changed some of the language to equivalent Aramaic words, which were apparently more recognizable to contemporary readers. Now, that is only speculation, but the evidence speaks for itself, especially since that Aramaic copy had all of those other special characters and markings. Furthermore, since in those same Dead Sea Scrolls, ancient copies of the song do indeed exist, which were written in Hebrew and evidently do not contain Aramaic words. The academic arguments over the appearance of Aramaic words in the Old Testament are completely irrelevant in regard to the song, because the Masoretic text is obviously not the authority. What is more relevant is to wonder how the 10th century Jews who compiled the Masoretic text had apparently defective manuscripts as they are also often at odds with the testimonies of not only many of the Dead Sea Scrolls, but also those of Flavius Josephus and the Septuagint. So we don't call our ancient scriptures into account because of the Masoretic text when the Masoretic text is clearly clearly defective in many ways. Therefore, according to the evidence, the providence and veracity of the Song of Songs of Solomon cannot be reasonably disputed as the language of the song in the Masoretic text was only grounds was the only grounds for such a dispute. And the existence of much older Hebrew copies eliminates those grounds. Wikipedia is not the authority which it pretends to be, but rather its pages are replete with the biases and agendas of its anonymous editors. Now, when I woke up this morning and I reread my introduction, which I wrote most of yesterday, I thought to add in comments concerning the dating of the Dead Sea Scrolls. However, it must have got lost because it wasn't here, and I had mentioned earlier that I would add it if I didn't see it. So, the Dead Sea Scrolls have many attitudes in the sectarian literature. Not all of the scrolls are sectarian. Many of the scrolls are simply copies of scripture. Some of the scrolls are simply copies of apocryphal books. And some of the scrolls are sectarian in nature or political in nature. And the writers of the Dead Sea Scrolls were vehemently anti-Roman, which tells us that the sectarian literature in the scrolls was written sometime after Rome had fully conquered Judea which was not before 63 BC, and as Abeg, Ulrich, and Flint had said, was probably no earlier than the beginning of the Herodian period. And the latest the scrolls could have been written was the rebellion and eventual destruction of Jerusalem, 68 to 70 AD, when Jerusalem was finally destroyed, and that's because there's no mention of the destruction of Jerusalem or even the rebellion against the Romans in the sectarian literature of the scrolls. So it seems to be that all of the scrolls were written 
in the sense of the sectarian literature or copied in the sense of the biblical literature during that period from about 63 or no earlier than 63 BC and probably no earlier than the time when Herod became king about 36 BC. They were written from that time up to about 68 to 70 AD is the latest any of them could have been written. So that's about round that out to about a 130-year period, and the Dead Sea Scrolls were all written or copied during that time. Now, I can actually, because I believe that the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls certainly were not Essenes. I believe that they are rather the fourth sect which Josephus had described as being, just like the scrolls themselves reflect, vehemently anti-Roman. And that's the sect of Judas the Galilean, which was anti-Roman. And they actually looked at the Sadducees and the Pharisees as cucks who were cooperating with Rome. They honestly did. So they were the real extremists, and the scroll seemed to belong to them. And that would date them no earlier than the time of Herod Archelaus. So say between about... <sighs> 8 to 10 AD up to about 65 to 70 AD. That's where I would personally date the Dead Sea Scrolls. I would bet. So, that being, that being said, among early Christian writers, the so-called Church Fathers, the Song of Songs was mentioned by the early 3rd century Christian bishop Hippolytus of Rome, who was born around 170 AD who in surviving fragments of his writing, where he was evidently inquiring as to the whereabouts of the many books and other works of Solomon, which are mentioned in the historic accounts of the Old Testament. In part, he was quoted as having said, And where is all this rich knowledge? And where are these mysteries? And where are the books? For the only ones extant are Proverbs and Wisdom and Ecclesiastes, <coughs> I'm sorry, and the Song of Songs. So there, we also see that Hippolytus had clearly accounted the Song of Songs and also the Wisdom of Solomon as part of the canon, as well as having accepted their attribution to Solomon. His contemporary, Melito of Sardis, who was also known as Melito the Philosopher, mentioned the song in reference to the Ascension of Christ, where he cited a particular passage which he believed had presaged that event, Song chapter 2, verse 8, and also in his book of extracts, he had listed it as part of his received Old Testament canon. Now, that's in a very early 2nd century A.D., perhaps 140 years after the Apostles, maybe 150, less after John. John lived longer, 140 to 150 years after the death of Paul, let me put it that way. The song is mentioned twice in the surviving epistles of Cyprian, a 3rd century bishop of Carthage. I'd rather pronounce it Cuprian, but I'll say Cyprian because that's the popular spelling and pronunciation. In one epistle which he had received from 
Firmilian, a bishop of Caesarea in Cappadocia. And he mentioned it in another epistle, which he himself had sent to an otherwise unknown Magnus, of which the subject was baptizing the Novatians, a sect which had been deemed heretical. It was also mentioned by Cyprian in his treatises, in Treatise 1, which the title of which is On the Unity of the Church, and in Treatise 4, which is On the Lord's Prayer. It was mentioned twice by Methodius of Olympus, a late 2nd century bishop of Olympus in Lycia, and later he was a bishop of Tyre. In the Banquet of the Ten Virgins, in Discourses 7, titled Procilla, and 9, titled Tusian. It was also mentioned in the prologue to a Latin translation of the writings of Origen made by the 4th century Christian monk and theologian Tyrannius Rufinus, who praised Jerome for his translation of the work into Latin. He thought it was Jerome's masterpiece, actually. The song was mentioned by Origen himself in book one of his commentary on the Gospel of John, in chapter 36, which was titled, Christ as a Sword. Origen seems to have been the most influential of these writers until the 6th century, when the church officially branded him as a heretic at the Second Council of Constantinople in 553. So you could be a Christian writer and not be a heretic for 300 years, and then all of a sudden you're a heretic. I would say that Origen, and I've read enough of him to know, I would say that Origen was a heretic from the very beginning. <laughs> but the church didn't notice that for 300 years, and I'm sort of making light of that. Earlier in 543 AD, Justinian had condemned Origen as a heretic and ordered all his writings to be burned. In our opinion, Origen was a her heretic, but for entirely different reasons than those of the heretical church, which nevertheless continues to follow Origen more closely than it follows Christ. However, with this, regardless of what we may think of them, we have many early Christian-era attestations of the veracity of the Song of Songs, in addition to its presence among the Dead Sea Scrolls and in the Greek Septuagint. When these passages to which we refer from the early Christian writers are actually examined, we will find that early Christians esteemed the Bride of the Song to have been a type for the Church and its relationship with Christ. Here I will offer a few examples. First, from the treatises of Cyprian, who was martyred at Carthage in 258 AD, and whose teachings on the song very well represent those of the Roman Catholic Church since it was established in later centuries. And yes, the Roman Catholic Church was not established until after the Council of Nicaea and didn't become the organization or institution that we know from history until after the time of Justinian in the 6th century. Two other examples are from the letters of Cyprian, although one of them is attributed to a bishop named Firmilian. I think I also have an example in here from Methodius. 
from Cyprian's Treatise 4, titled On the Lord's Prayer, in part from paragraph 31, and to get the to, to get the context, I had to cite a lengthier portion of this than I wanted to, but I probably should have cited an even lengthier portion than I had. So, from paragraph 31 of Cyprian's treatise, Moreover, when we stand praying, beloved brethren, we ought to be watchful and earnest with our whole heart, intent on our prayers. And then a little further on, let the breast be closed against the adversary and be open to God alone. Evidently, Cyprian thought the adversary or Satan was some spiritual entity that was going to snatch you up and invade you. That's the impression that I received from this. Nor let it suffer God's enemy to, re- to approach to it at the time of prayer. Speaking of the breast. This And then a little further on, because I skipped a few lines. This is absolutely to take no precaution against the enemy. This is, when you pray to God, to offend the majesty of God by the carelessness of your prayer. This is to be watchful with your eyes and to be asleep with your heart. While the Christian, even though he he is asleep with his eyes, ought to be awake in his heart as it is written in the person of the church speaking in the Song of Songs, I sleep, yet my heart waketh. Wherefore the apostle anxiously and carefully warns us, saying, Continue in prayer and watch in the same. He's citing Paul of Tarsus. Teaching, that is, and showing that those are able to obtain from God what they ask, whom God sees to be watchful in their prayer. So Cyprian drew an example from the Song of Songs, and I will comment on this shortly. I I want to get all three passages of Cyprian in here first. From the Epistles of Cyprian, from Epistle 74, which was written to him by Fermilion, the bishop of Caesarea in Cappadocia, against a letter by a certain Stephen dated to 256 A.D., There is a grammatical error which was probably caused by errant typesetting in all of the copies I have found, which I have tried to correct here. So in part, from paragraph 15, But neither must we pass over what has been necessarily remarked by you, that the church, according to the Song of Songs, is a garden enclosed and a fountain sealed, a paradise with the fruit of apples, They who have never entered into this garden, and have not seen the paradise planted by God the Creator, how shall they be able to afford to another to bring water of the saving lava? That's where the grammatical error is. How shall they be able to afford to another to bring water of the saving lava from the fountain which is enclosed within and sealed with a divine seal? So we see that Cyprian believed that the bride of the Song of Songs was the church, because it's the bride that's described as a paradise with fruit of apples and a garden enclosed, as we shall see later in this commentary. Finally, from the Epistles of Cyprian, Epistle 75, written to a certain 
Magnus entitled On Baptizing the Novations and Those Who Obtain Grace on a Sickbed from paragraph 2. But that the church is one, the Holy Spirit declares in the Song of Songs, saying, in the person of Christ, Cyprian believed that the husband or king of the Song of Songs was a type for Christ, and we would also accept that, except that it's also a type for Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, who is Christ. So he quotes, and he says, attributing these words to Christ himself in reference to the church, My dove, my undefiled, is one. She is the only one of her mother. She is the choice one of her that bears her. Concerning which he also says again, A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. A spring sealed up, a well of living water. But if the spouse of Christ, which is the church, is a garden enclosed, a thing that is enclosed cannot lie open to strangers and profane persons. Now, that is good, but I don't know if Cyprian would have expressed that with the same meaning that we would like to hear it. So he continues, And if it is a fountain sealed, he who, being placed without, has no access to the spring, can neither drink thence nor be sealed. And the well also of living water, if it is one and the same within, he who is placed without cannot be quickened and sanctified from that water of which it is only granted to those who are within to make any use or to drink. I'm sorry, that clapping sound was me trying to smack a mosquito flying by between me and my monitor. This is Florida. Welcome to Florida. Okay, finally, and I have the passage here from Methodius first. From Methodius's Banquet of the Ten Virgins, in Discourse 9, titled To Cian, in part, the Jews, uncircumcised in heart, think that the most beautiful fruit of wood is the citron wood on account of its size. Nor are they ashamed to say that God is worshipped with cedar, to whom not all the quadrupeds of the earth would suffice as a burnt offering or as incense for burning. And moreover, O hard beasts, O hard breasts, I'm sorry, if the citron appeared beautiful to you, why not the pomegranate and other fruits of trees, and amongst them apples, which must surpass the citron? Indeed, in the Song of Songs, Solomon, having made mention of all these fruits, passes over in silence the citron only. But this deceives the unwary, for they have not understood that the tree of life, which paradise once bore, now again the church has produced for all, even the ripe and comely fruit of faith. Such fruit is necessary that we bring when we come to the judgment seat of Christ on the first day of the feast. For if we are without it, we shall not be able to feast with God, nor to have part, according to John, in the first resurrection. I would like to have included more of that passage for a better sense of its original context. But to do so, we would have had to address many other theological disputes which we would have with Methodius.
who, for example, had thought that the tree of life in Genesis was wisdom, simply because Solomon in the Proverbs had described wisdom as a tree of life. While wisdom may be described as a tree, that does not necessarily mean that the original tree is limited in its substance to being wisdom alone. The analogy doesn't work both ways. Later, in Discourse 7 of the same work, titled Procilla, Methodius had abused certain terms in the song so that he could idealize and promote perpetual virginity among men, which also seems to have lent authority to the corrupt Roman Catholic priesthood. Where Cyprian asserted that the song is speaking in the person of the church, the words of the passage which he cited, which are from Song chapter 5, verse 2, are spoken by the king's bride. So we see that Cyprian interpreted the song as an allegory, where the main characters represent Christ and his church as his bride. Then, in agreement with Cyprian, Methodius also described the church as the garden of the song, and the song itself is, and in the song itself, the garden, in turn, is an allegory for the bride. This is evident where the king declares that a garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed, in Song chapter 4, verse 12. To that extent, we would agree with all of that, and that is indeed the allegory of the song. However, we would seriously differ at the point of defining what the church is. To Cyprian, it was an ethereal body of believers. To later Roman Catholics, it became an institution incorporating anyone whom it could initiate into its own organization. To us, as it was to both the apostles and prophets of Christ, the church are the genetic descendants of the ancient children of Israel who were promised redemption and reconciliation to Yahweh their God through Christ. So the church is the children of Israel in the Old Testament, and the church was the children is the children of Israel in the New Testament, as it is by the mouth of the prophets that the word of God is proven to be true when the descendants of the scattered children of Israel hear his voice and return to him in Christ. But Cyprian and Methodius cannot be blamed for the later corruptions of the Roman Catholic Church as they were only faithfully fulfilling what they had received, unwittingly or not. While we cannot speculate, as to what the apostles themselves had thought of the song, as it is not mentioned or cited in the New Testament. We should understand that it is indeed a love poem describing the relationship between Yahweh and the children of Israel, disguised as an erotic poem of the mutual love between King Solomon and his bride. We have already explained that the song is actually a series of monologues and dialogues in which there are several participants. The husband, or king, which is Solomon himself. The bride, who is variously described as his lover or beloved. 
his sister, and his spouse. And a chorus identified as, Ye daughters of Zion, or, more often, Ye daughters of Jerusalem, where they are addressed by the bride on eight occasions, although they are never addressed by the king, by the husband. According to Britannica, the attribution of the song to Solomon is a late addition, which is something that they cannot prove. The earliest manuscripts of both the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls contain the attribution to Solomon. So they have no basis whatsoever for such a statement. Then they assert that modern scholars lean towards the opinion that the song is a mere collection of disparate love poems. However, as we proceed, we also hope to elucidate the folly of that contention. Now it seems that, at least on this occasion, Britannica is no better than Wikipedia. However, even Bertrand Compare, as we had discussed in a past presentation on the song, the Song of Solomon to the the importance of the Song of Solomon to biblical anthropology, Bertrand Compré had made the same errant conclusion, having said, and I quote, I don't see why mere poetry as such is entitled to be put in the Bible. Wesley Swift had an even worse assessment of the song, which was so bad that it is almost embarrassing to identity Christians. I also discussed that at length in that same presentation. So apparently both Swift and Compare were following the many modern academics who complain that the song has nothing to do with God or the law. But in that August 2016, August 2016 presentation on certain aspects of the song, I wrote the following. The Song of Solomon is indeed about God in the form of Solomon as a type for Yahshua Christ, and it also represents an inspired message from God. The allegories in the Song of Solomon reveal that Solomon is a type for Christ and that the wife of the king is the collective body of the children of Israel. The queen, or lover, beloved one, in the Song of Solomon represents the Israelites as a people. And the Song of Songs merits its illustrious title because it represents the greatest love story ever told, that of Yahweh's love for Israel, his bride. Now I shall add the assertion that the fulfillment of the allegory of the song is clearly found in Revelation in the Revelation in chapters 21 and 22, where the city of God is seen to be an allegory for the people of God, the tribes of Israel, as the bride of the Lamb, and as the garden found in the midst of that city. Although the word garden itself was not utilized, the city and its people were certainly described in that manner, as a tree with twelve sorts of fruit. Thus we shall begin our commentary on the text of the song itself. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, that's verse 1 of chapter 1. The opening verse seems only to have been a title. Here we will preface 
each verse or portion with the apparent speaker, as the entire body of the work is either dialogue or monologue, and the first dialogue begins immediately. So, from the bride, verse 2, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. And now from the chorus, the daughters of Jerusalem, as we shall find later. Because of the savor of thy good ointments, thy name is as ointment poured forth. Therefore do the virgins love thee. So the bride responds in verse 4. And the King James Version is confusing, so we will offer commentary and a different version of it. Draw me, we will run after thee. The king has brought me into his chambers. So here the King James Version rendering is confused, and also confusing as it changes perspective from the first to third person in mid-sentence. The Dead Sea Scrolls Bible translates this first half of this verse relatively close to what is offered in the New American Standard Bible, from which we shall repeat it. And the bride says, Draw me after you, and let us run together. The king has brought me into his chambers. Now, returning to the King James Version for the second half of the verse. The chorus says, We will be glad and rejoice in thee. We will remember thy love more than wine. The upright will love thee. Or the upright love thee. I'm sorry. The New American Standard Bible has the last phrase of that verse to read, Rightly do they love you. The Dead Sea Scrolls Bible has, How right are your beloved ones? Examining the Hebrew, since the noun, which literally means uprightness, is plural, I am persuaded that the rendering in the King James Version is correct. The upright, the upright ones, love thee. Now the bride says in verse 5, I am black, but comely, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, as the tents of Kedar, as the curtains of Solomon. Look not upon me, because I am black, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's children were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but mine own vineyard have I not kept. With a casual reading of the song, or even after many such readings, Along with many others, I also had once imagined that these words belonged to Solomon himself. But while Solomon wrote the words, they are actually placed in the mouth of his bride. It is highly unlikely that the bride of Solomon, who is described in Song chapter 7 verse 1 as the daughter of a prince or noble, had ever actually worked to keep a vineyard. So as soon as the song begins, we see an allegory which helps us to understand that this is no simple love poem. Rather, it is a poem that stands as an allegory for the relationship between Yahweh God and the people of Israel, who collectively as a nation are his bride, and who were given a garden to keep. Then, just as Yahweh had taken his bride out of Egypt, 
Solomon infers that his own bride was a woman who was taken out of Egypt, where he is described in verse 9 of this chapter as having compared her to a company of horses in Pharaoh's chariots. And we will discuss that at greater length when we get to that point in this chapter. With this, it is further apparent that Solomon is using his own wife as the model for the allegory which is represented in this song. As we read in 1 Kings chapter 3, And Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David, until he had made an end of building his own house and the house of Yahweh and the wall of Jerusalem round about. So these circumstances described in the poem fit both the relationship of Solomon with his wife and the relationship between Yahweh and Israel. The words attributed to the woman, where she says, I am black but comely, are much abused by certain commentators who would insist that she is some sort of negress. However, where she pleads later in this verse, addressing the daughters of Jerusalem, to look not upon me because I am black, we see that she considered it a disgrace to be black, and therefore the state of being black must have been must have been considered a reproach. The reason for her blackness is also explained where she further said, I am black because the sun has looked upon me. So we see that she was not truly black, but swarthy from a suntan because she was out working in the fields, in the vineyard. A truly black woman in a black society, would not lament being ashamed. She would not lament being black. She would not be ashamed for being black, as this woman is here. In words attributed to the king and his description of this bride, in Song chapter 7, we read in part where he tells her that thy belly is like a heap of wheat set about with lilies. Thy neck is as a tower of ivory. Thine eyes like the fish pools in Heshbon. So the bride, who described herself as being swarthy because she had been tanned by the sun, certainly is a Caucasian woman, which we would expect in the historical context of Solomon's time having a belly white like wheat, a neck white like ivory, and eyes like pools of water, which would probably have been blue, but perhaps may also have been either gray or green. Another Egyptian princess of whom we have a certain physical description, because there aren't very many. Most of them, they're statues or their paintings did not exist in or did not survive in full color, although there are sufficient. Another Egyptian princess is Nefertiti, the wife of the pharaoh Akhenaten, who lived until about 1370 BC, 400 years before Solomon. 
who had fair skin and blue or gray eyes. A painted full-color bust of her was discovered in 1912 at an excavation at Tel El Armana and is currently housed in a museum in Berlin. So I will include a photo of that bust along with this presentation when it's posted to Christagenia. I'm sorry I can't show pictures on a podcast. While the bride had been addressing the daughters of Jerusalem, now she directly addresses her husband. Tell me, O thou whom my soul loveth, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon? For why should I be as one that turns aside by the flocks of thy companions? While the text of the Dead Sea Scrolls is fragmented and missing from this point until the beginning of Song chapter 2, verse 8, Abeg, Ulrich, and Flint had the end of this verse to read, Why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? In contrast to the word for kids in verse 8, the word for flocks here is a masculine plural form. The bride is showing modesty and desires to be with her husband exclusively. So now the husband speaks for the first time in reply to the inquiry of the bride, whose words in verse 7 had expressed her longing for him. So the husband says, If thou know not, O thou fairest among women, go thy way forth by the footsteps of the flock, and feed thy kids, meaning female, young female goats, beside the shepherd's tents. And here once again, it is very unlikely that we should interpret this as a literal husband who is a king addressing his wife and queen. It is very unlikely that a noble woman of Solomon's time would be found out in the pastures with flocks of goats or sheep. It better seems to fit as an allegory of the children of Israel inquiring after Yahweh their God and receiving this answer. Yet we may interpret this allegorically in another manner as being a reference to the daughters of Jerusalem found in the company of the bride. As the word for kids is a feminine plural form, which describes young female goats. Therefore, it would be evident that the bride did not want to bring her own companions into the company of the male flocks representing the companions of the king, who are otherwise unmentioned. The husband continues to address the bride. In verse 9, I have compared thee, O my love to a company of horses in Pharaoh's chariots. Thy cheeks are comely with rows of jewels. Of jewels is in italics. It was added to the text. Thy neck with chains of gold. And it's the same for the words of gold. We will make thee borders of gold with studs of silver. And here there is a clue in the identity of the bride indicating that she was the wife which Solomon had taken from Pharaoh in Egypt. This is because if she were a woman of Israel, there would be no reason to compare her to Pharaoh's horses, as the children of Israel by Solomon's time had a sufficient number of their own horses. 
In fact, it is evident that the area ruled by David, along with the subjected vassal states, was larger, more prosperous, and more populous than Egypt was as it was ruled by Pharaoh at that same time. But if the bride was an Egyptian princess, then the comparison would be fitting in that context. In verse 10, thy cheeks are comely with rows of jewels. The word jewels was added by the translators, as was the word for gold in the clause read, thy neck with chains of gold. The word for chains can mean necklaces by itself, where the New American Standard Bible has ornaments. The word for rose is Strong's number 8446, tur, or tor, T-U-W-R, is how Strong's transliterates it into English. And it is defined as a circlet, a plate, or a turn, such as of hair or of gold. As a verb, it is to seek out, search, or explore, and is certainly the word from which the English word tour is derived, T-O-U-R. Often, however, as a noun, it is translated as turtle dove, referring in certain contexts to a bird as it is here, and also later in Song chapter 2. It is turtle dove in Genesis chapter 15 and frequently elsewhere in Scripture. For that reason, here in the Septuagint version, in Brenton's translation, we read, How are thy cheeks beautiful as those of a dove, thy neck as chains? In verse 11, the same word is translated as borders in the King James Version, and ornaments once again in the New American Standard Bible. Now the bride answers her husband. While the king sits at his table, my spikenard sendeth forth the smell thereof. A bundle of myrrh is my well-beloved unto me. He shall lie all night betwixt my breasts. My beloved is unto me as a cluster of camphire in the vineyards of Engedi. There are many literary clues, as we shall see, which help us define certain words as they were used in the Song of Solomon. Engedi is one of them here. The word for well-beloved and beloved here in these verses is on both occasions dawed or dowed, if you want. It's D, V, or D, W, D, three consonants, Daleth, Vav, and Daleth. The Vav can be a W, it could be a U, or a V, depending on how it's interpreted. So, being in the masculine form here, it can refer to a close male relative, as well as to a loved one. As a digression, it is my opinion that this is the ultimate source of the English word dad, as in a father. When the Septuagint was translated from Hebrew, this word here in this passage was apparently rendered as Adelphitus, not quite Adelphus. Strangely, that particular form of the word Adelphus, or brother, was more typically used to describe a nephew, 
While the original ninth edition of the Liddell and Scott Greek English lexicon cite this passage and adds beloved one to the definition for Adelphetus, the 1996 supplement strikes the words. They don't explain why they did that. There is no explicit indication that the scene has changed. But by this point, the husband and the bride must be alone in the main bedroom chamber of the house. And we do see that further back. The king has brought me into his chambers, even though the bride is still addressing the daughters of Jerusalem. Perhaps I should look at that translation as well. Perhaps it should have said, the king will bring me into his chambers, but the text is obscure. In this context, it is certain that the word for table or masab is better translated as couch or even bedside. I will repeat verse 12. While the king sits at his table, and the word sitteth was added to the text, my spikenard sendeth forth the smell thereof. Misab is better translated as couch or even as bedside. The word describes something which is round or something that surrounds another. In the Septuagint version of this passage, it was translated with the feminine form of the word anaclesis which in the New Testament often described a couch upon which the Greeks customarily reclined or sat while dining. In the context of the passages which follow, it becomes evident that the bride is describing herself as this table, so it should have been translated as bedside. That will become clear as we proceed. The word for Campfire. Sounds like campfire, right? But it's not. The word for campfire is Strong's number 3724, kofer, which in Hebrew, which among other things is asphalt or pitch. The New American Standard Bible translated the word as henna here which is correct in other contexts, but here, that is unfortunate. It is unfortunate because En Gedi is the largest oasis on the western shores of the Dead Sea. It was a refuge for David as he fled from Saul, 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 29. So the location provides the context for what is meant by the use of the word kofer here. In his geography, in Book 16, Strabo of Cappadocia had described the Dead Sea as being full of such asphalt as is described by the word kofer, which occasionally rose to the surface and cooled, whereby the local people would harvest and sell it. He also described it as being the source of below-surface fires, which caused the asphalt to rise bubbling to the surface before it cooled and hardened. So here it is apparent that a cluster of camp fear 
depicts something which is burning intensely. And together with references to the feminine form, the graphically sexual nature of the song begins to become apparent, which apparently made the song controversial in early times. The king is sitting at his bedside. As he sits at his bedside, the bride's spikenard, or perfume, sends forth the smell thereof. And at the same time, he is a bundle of myrrh to her. So she is appreciating his smell. He shall lie all night between my breasts. Then he is to her a cluster of camphire, which is something that is intensely burning in the vineyards of Engedi. And why would you have asphalt in your vineyards? She is the garden, and he is the burning. Now the bride is answered by the husband. Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair, thou hast dove's eyes. And in this case, the word for dove, dove is Jonah, which was also the name of the prophet Jonah. In the King James Version, it was sometimes also translated as pigeon. So it's a pigeon or dove, I gather. Now the bride responds in verse 16. Behold, thou art fair, my beloved. Yeah, pleasant. Also, our bed is green. The beams of our house are cedar and our rafters of fir. Our bed is green. Throughout this poem, the bride is described as a garden of wonderful plants and fruits. However, here the word for green is rayanin, which is defined as to be or grow luxuriant or fresh or green from an unused root, which means to be green. The word for bed here is Strong's number 6210, eris a couch or a bed. And in my opinion, this is the ultimate root of the Greek word eros, which is erotic love. The chapter breaks are not always appropriate in many places in the Bible. Here, there is a chapter break in the middle of the response of the bride. In my opinion, chapter breaks have led many men to err, taking things out of context because they often ignore clarifying statements which precede or follow a chapter break, not looking past the chapter breaks. Here they reflect another problem, that the translators had not endeavored to distinguish or perhaps even to determine who was saying what from one verse to another in this poem. For example, when we get to the passage at Song chapter 6, verse 13, we shall be compelled to move six English words to the beginning of chapter 7, and other anomalies shall also have to be addressed. So for now, here we, con we will continue a short space into chapter 2. The bride, continuing her answer to her husband, I am the Rose of Sharon and the Lily of the Valleys. While the rose in English is the flower which best represents romance, the Hebrew word here, 
Chabatshalef, Strong's number 2261, is said to be a meadow saffron or a crocus. But the Shushan, Strong 7799, is probably a lily or any lily-like flower. Now, once again, the husband replies, As the lily among thorns, so is love um, so is my love among the daughters. Now, that word for thorns could be brambles or thistles or any type of bush. The word love may have been more clearly rendered as beloved. Here, the feminine form of the word rea, which is more literally a companion, was usually translated as love or beloved, where the husband of the song employs it in reference to the bride. This feminine form of Rhea appears in Scripture only in the Song of Songs and on nine occasions. The bride responds once more, As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. Now the words for sons in verse 3 and daughters in verse 2 are not necessarily the sons and daughters of either the husband or the bride, but may have been rendered as young men or and young women or maidens as they were in these passages in the New American Standard Bible. That may have been better in this context, that the husband is beloved among the young men, and that the bride is beloved among the maidens, the daughters of Jerusalem, for example. From this point, in the middle of verse 3, the bride is no longer addressing the husband, but is rather expressing her experience and the result of it aloud in a monologue, and we shall see that the husband has already fallen asleep. She is expressing her ensuing experience, what she experienced after acknowledging that her husband is beloved among the young men. So the bride says, I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. And as it is in Genesis chapter 3, the eating of fruit here is a euphemism for the act of sexual intercourse. And we shall see more of this as we progress throughout the Song of Songs. The bride continues to relate her experience. Chapter 2, verse 4. As it is, I'm sorry, he brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Stay me with flagons, Comfort me with apples, for I am sick of love, or lovesick would be better in our vernacular. The banqueting house is literally house of wine, as it was also translated in the Septuagint. But even then, it is a euphemism for the bedroom, as the king certainly would not engage in lovemaking in his dining hall, which was probably one of the busiest and most public areas of his house. In the Septuagint, the word for flagons here was translated to a feminine form of 
amoris, which is without a lot or share of something, and for that reason, unfortunate, unlucky, or wretched. But in the Latin of the Vulgate, it was translated to a word which means flowers. The word for stay here is samak, Strong's number 5564, which is to support, to lean on, rest upon, or uphold. In the context of the verse, the bride is looking to be sustained with flagons, which in turn comes from a Hebrew word, ashisha, which is raisin cakes. That much better fits the context of the clauses which follow. So we would prefer the rendering of this passage found in the New American Standard Bible, I should say, of verse 5, found in the New American Standard Bible. And the bride says, Sustain me with raisin cakes. Refresh me with apples, because I am lovesick. Continuing with the words of the bride, she draws a picture of their intimacy. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand does embrace me. The text of verse 5 describes the bride as having become weak from lovemaking, but evidently by this time the husband has fallen asleep. So now she once again comes out to address the chorus. And the bride says to the chorus in verse 7, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field, that you not stir up nor awake my love till he please. So here it is fully evident that the scene to this point has been one of lovemaking, couched in euphemisms, but peppered with some more explicitly erotic language. When we return to this point in the Song of Songs, it seems that there is a new scene. The bride is recovered, and she is once again longing for her husband. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.